Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm Mary Alice Parks, a political reporter here at ABC. And a happy new year to you, Mary Alice, and to all of our listeners here on Powerhouse Politics. Uh, it is only a couple days into the new year, uh, but it seems like we never left 2017. The pace has not let up at all. The president has been uh, very busy at tweeting, uh, roiling some international controversies and uh, starting to dig in a little bit in domestic politics. And boom, that sound you heard, that's not North Korea and their nukes. Actually, it is a uh, another kind of bombshell of the journalistic variety. The the new book uh, by Michael Wolf, longtime journalist, Fire and Fury. And boy, is there a lot in there, Mary Alice, to unpack. Absolutely. You know, people have been fascinated with the palace intrigue, what goes on in the White House, who talks to who, who speaks for the president uh, since day one, partly because there's a concern about what, what the decision-making process is like for this president, what his thinking uh, is, how he comes to conclusions. And so some of this back and forth, the gossip is just always going to be uh, salacious and and sort of take over the headlines when it drops. Uh, indeed. And a little later in the program, we're going to check in with uh, Senator James Lankford, who's a Republican from Oklahoma and a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, about his take on on, on some of the allegations in the book, as well as the, the situation in North Korea. Uh, but but let's talk uh, about the, for, the former chief strategist of the White House, a man that you may have heard of, uh, the mysterious uh, and, 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 and always intriguing Mr. Steve Bannon. Uh, if you uh, if you didn't know Steve Bannon before, and I, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, if you didn't know Steve Bannon before, <laughs> you certainly get a, an introduction to Bannon and to Bannonism in this. He was um, a key member of the president's um, down-the-stretch uh, general election team. He uh, was credited as, as the mastermind of that general election strategy. And he came in with this this odd new title of chief strategist, on par even on paper with the White House chief of staff. And it seemed like he was taking notes along the way and had a lot to say when Michael Wolf came calling. And I think that the reason you got such a quick backlash from the White House to the reports in that article is because it seemed for the first time like Steve Bannon was admitting to, from the inside, these other rumors that the White House has been so sensitive about, rumors that there's just incredible dysfunction, that there's incompetence, ignorance, uh, that the president himself might be incompetent, ignorant. And so when you, yeah, it's one thing for unnamed sources or Democrats or, or establishment Republicans to make these claims through the media, through. Uh, through other sources, uh, sort of on the periphery. But when you have a guy who was right there next to the West Wing telling reporters uh, those same sorts of things, it was just a bridge too far. Yeah, and uh, you can talk about burning bridges, but this is like burning down the whole White House when you look at it and, and the relationships that are, that are part of this. And let's listen to Sarah Sanders. She was asked about this at the White House on, on Wednesday uh, and uh, and had some sharp words for uh, for Mr. Bannon. Furious, disgusted would probably certainly fit when you uh, make such outrageous claims and completely false claims against the president, uh, his administration and his family. Completely false <laughs> um, administration and family. All, all of these things are, are wrapped up in it. And I do think it's the family stuff that has got to cut very close to the bone for President Trump. Uh, I want to talk in a minute about Don Jr. and what Bannon has to say about the Russia meeting. He calls it even tr- potentially treason. Uh, but also Jared, Ivanka. I mean, they come in for a really tough go of this. They're portrayed as having very little political instincts and, and often uh, kind of condoning uh, their father or father-in-law's uh, bumbling manner, like almost like they're excusing away the fact that he doesn't seem as read in on issues, uh, and maybe even some scheming behind the scenes about their own political futures. You know the the. 
tweet that I kept coming back to today were those memes I saw about the with the Taylor Swift song, right? That that, that no, we'll, I'm not familiar with it. We'll, we, will, we will never ever get back together. That's what today was about. Today <laughs> was a day that uh, Trump and Bannon got divorced once and for all. And there's been so much talk about how this day would arrive, whether it would come. You know, if Mitch McConnell would eventually say, "I cannot work with you," continue to work with this man. That that Jared Kushner would try to get him out of the White House long before. There was all this um, talk about whether the breakup would come and how it would really come. Even after he le- Stephen Bannon left the White House, it wasn't clear that there was a clean break. Today, the break. Today, the official breakup and the official divorce. And that's going to have real consequences uh, politically down the road, maybe legislatively, too. You know, this is Steve Bannon, who has said that he's going to take on Republicans across the board, across uh, the midterm sort of uh, uh, the entire game plan is going to be to go against Republican establishment candidates. And so if now the president has to decide who he's backing in all of these races, which primaries he gets involved with, I mean, this is a divorce that has huge consequences. So two points. One is, I can't believe you just quoted Taylor Swift. Usually when John Carl's here, he quotes Bob Dylan. So you just moved us ahead about half a century in the timeline. But, I didn't sing. I spared you. Okay, fair enough. We'll get John to sing it when he's back next week. But but secondly, you really think this divorce is final? Let me let me let me throw hold on. Let me let me let me go old school Eagles on you. Hotel California. You can move out anytime you want, but you can't ever leave. That is the story of the Trump orbit. I I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I talked to one former uh, White House aide today who said, "Look, you know, if, if if a month from now or even two weeks from now, the president tweets, I'm making America great again with Steve Bannon.' Would anyone really be surprised if he's back on board with Steve Bannon? Their paths are going to cross over the course of this year, especially if Bannon continues to work for primary candidates. I is and if this, the president feels like backing some of those primary candidates that Steve Bannon is also backing is in his interest. Right. He likes so, winning. I, 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 you have to get into Bannon's mind about what he thought he was accomplishing here. But do you think this is this is the this is the breach? This is there's no turning back. That Bannonism and Trumpism are now are now divorced from themselves and can't be joined again. I think that the statement put out by the White House today will forever be quoted in all of these conversations moving forward as as sort of midterm coverage gears up, as all these political races come into the spotlight, um, as there's talk about who speaks for the far right in this country, who speaks for that sort of um, unnamed wing of the Republican Party that, that Republicans themselves have had a hard time coming to grips with, their people will continue to come back to the harsh statements, uh, the very dramatic breakup that went down, at least on paper and at least at the White House briefing today. Yeah, and I think that the, the, other, the other legacy, if you will, of the, of the, the Michael Wolff book, the other present that Steve Bannon leaves for the president himself or his comments on Russia uh, and that investigation. He is he, he, he's bewildered by the fact that Donald Trump Jr. took that meeting in Trump Tower, brought Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner along with him to meet with someone who purports to be a Russian operative, saying that they were peddling dirt on Hillary Clinton. Uh, the, the, the fact that, that, that Don Trump Jr. takes this meeting and in Steve Bannon's view doesn't even think about bringing a lawyer or doing it at some kind of a, an offsite location. Bannon's view is that, of course, he would go tell the president president about that meeting, which the White House today denied. But he also says that uh, that it would be treasonous and unpatriotic to, to even take that meeting with the Russians. Keep in mind, it, you know, Bannon's Breitbart among them. There's been a big Republican effort to try to discredit Bob Mueller and say this is a witch hunt. The, you now have the president's former chief strategist saying, 
it's not a witch hunt at all. This was a treasonous and unpatriotic act that is known about, that is confirmed, not to mention whatever else they're learning. Right. It's one thing for Steve Bannon to disagree with the president, disagree with some position the president or the president's son has taken. And it's another to say that he did something wrong and illegal. That is a total different line of attack against the White House, essentially, and very much um, a, a position that goes against what the president has been trying to say to the American people in his defense. You know, the president has backed his son, said that it was a meeting most people would take, that most political operatives would take, that he understood where his son was coming from. Um, so obviously, this was uh, hugely explosive, those quotes from Steve Bannon um, using that kind of language. And there's a lot in the book that, that certainly rings true. And the, the idea that even on election day and election night, the president uh, didn't didn't expect to win. His close family members and aides and advisors, none of them thought they'd win. They certainly weren't, weren't acting in the run-up like a, like a, like people that thought they'd win. Then the sort of halting uh, and chaotic nature of the transition and the early days in the White House, all of those things, I think, are are, are very familiar to anyone who's covered the, the Trump White House. I think, though, the, the, the piece of this that likely gets under the president's skin the most, I would say even more than anything you say about Don Jr. or anything you say about Jared or Ivanka or any of the close aides and advisors, I think is the suggestion that the president just isn't that smart, that he's not read in, that he doesn't really know what's going on, uh, that there's, there's a lot of words thrown out like, like idiot uh, that are attributed to to close businessmen and aides and people he talked to. Right. I mean, he has one source unnamed that that basically called the president semi-literate. I can't imagine what it would be like to read that about yourself in an article. Yeah, and then even others that are quoted on the record saying, you know, they tried. There was the one aide says he tried to talk about the Constitution with him, and they got as far as the Fourth Amendment, and uh, and and all of a sudden he was he was looking for something else to do, and little details like like the the preference for McDonald's, which we've known about for some time, that uh, the, according to Michael Wolf was tied to uh, his. His, his fear of being poisoned by someone, him lying about his height to, to influence the way. It's a lot of things about the, the sheets and his preferences of, of, of how to change the sheets in, in the White wanting House. Wanting to change his own sheets. Wanting to change his own sheets and wanting a lock on the door of his own. It, it, it really, this is the kind of things you almost never hear about a president ever, ever, not to mention one who still has three years plus left on his term. They paint a picture of a rather um, neurotic man worried about being poisoned, disagreeing with Secret Service about protection. But obviously, I think it's important for us to point out that the White House has just pushed back on all of this, basically called fiction all day today. But it is interesting that while there are a lot of unnamed sources, there are some sources that are on the record with their names, including the former Deputy Chief of Staff, Katie Walsh, who says on the record with her name there that sometimes dealing in that Trump White House with the chaos of how he perceived and took in and, and digested information was, quote, like trying to figure out what a child wants. Yeah. And, and Katie Walsh is among those who thinks that this this book was uh, was uh, not true to the spirit of what she said, and, and she'll be among those that are pushing back. And I think you're already seeing the White House make an effort to take down Michael Wolff. But keep in mind, the president himself talked to Wolf at least once, and Wolf was a presence in the White House. He had a lot of access. We're told that by Wolf himself that the, the president wanted his aides to cooperate, and quite a few of them did. Uh, and at some point, it became clear that the reporting was leading somewhere they didn't want it to. Uh, and I think just to, to turn it now to the 
to this new year because, you know, we're only a couple of days in. The president has a whole long list of things he's got to confront with the Congress. Uh, there, are, there are a bunch of deadlines that got punted into the new year that he has to grapple with. Uh, and it seemed like he was just restless on his days at Mar-a-Lago and couldn't wait to stir the pot on foreign policy. And his uh, his tweets about Pakistan and, and the Palestinian territories. Uh, in addition to that, the, the, the already infamous tweet about the size of the button that Kim Jong-un has for his nuclear arsenal. Uh, you know, we, we, we never know with him because he's improvising a lot, but these are quite stakes, quite the stakes to be gambling with with Kim Jong-un. And he has, like you said, just this huge domestic agenda that he wants to get done that he also says is uh, an absolute priority. Big ticket items like infrastructure that, that he says he wants planned and written and done and wrapped up in the next few weeks, perhaps. And I just do not understand how you have the attention to focus on those big domestic issues and pass big pieces of legislation while at the same time dealing with all of these foreign policy issues that seem like they are reaching an absolute fever pitch. Yeah, and, and it seems like any time that they, they, they reach that, he reaches into his bag to tweet some more things and to throw it out there again. And there's something even... And how much of the chaos is just self-created? Well, a lot of it. And and and, and I would also argue that a lot of the the actions of the president even the last couple of days are very bannon-esque blow things up this is the this is the worldview that that is dominated and that while you could potentially divorce trump uh, and bannon the forces of trumpism the forces of bannonism came together to create the trump presidency and you're never going to really take that out of the dna of this president you're also assuming that there's a there's a certain you're giving Bannon quite a lot of credit there then for, for not only creating um, sort of the getting him into the White House, but creating the kind of president that he is. And uh, I think that there is a lot of Republicans and even perhaps this president that would say that's giving one man too much credit. Uh, I, yes. And I, I don't even think, well, Bannon may, but I don't think I don't think Bannon deserves all that credit. But he did he did provide an ideology and an intellectual basis for what Trump had, had tapped into. And I think he does deserve credit for what it's worth for that. Uh, I, I wonder if he went further than he knew he was going or meant to go in this book, because to, to, to really look to sever ties with the president seems like that's, a hurt, that's hurtful to the Bannon brand. He's a guy that still wants to be relevant, and now he's going to be on the outside. Maybe he feels like he has enough strength that his own followers. Good luck with that. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see how that lands. All right, we'll be back in a few moments with Senator James Lankford, Republican from Oklahoma. Are you feeling limitless? I don't think I've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere, but I'll tell it now. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Are you a psychiatrist? (laughs) No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba. Ariana Huffington. Issa Rae. Barbara Corcoran. Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. Hey, this is Dan Harris, and uh, I want to tell you about my podcast called 10% Happier. You can listen every Wednesday for new guests and new perspectives. Some of these are people you know, uh, celebrities, athletes, executives. Uh, some of them are uh, more obscure people that I'm obsessed with that I think you might be obsessed with once you uh, give them a listen. And you can hear about how they're using meditation to up their game in all these interesting areas of life. Again, the podcast is called 10% Happier. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and subscribe today. And we're pleased to be joined here on Powerhouse Politics by Senator James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma. Senator, thanks for being here. You bet. Glad to be with you. 
Great. So I want to talk about the the push that uh, that you've got going on right now on immigration reform. But I want I want to start on the news and this Michael Wolf book, which has really blown up around town. And one thing in particular that I want your take on as a as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, Steve Bannon, his take on this meeting with the Russians that 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 Don that Don Jr. set up and has been well reported on. In his view, he says that meeting in itself, whatever was conversed there, just taking the meeting, treasonous and unpatriotic. What's your take on that? Yeah, that that's uh, some pretty strong language um, to be able to be in that. What the, the hard part for me is is that as at, at that point he seemed to be the campaign person for them. Uh, if he'd seen it that way, he probably should have voiced it to someone or to given some kind of instructions. Uh, the the campaign at that point seemed to be in somewhat a campaign novice mode, which they were. They've never been in a national campaign, and some members of the family. Uh, who had these connections wanted to be able to take this meeting. Uh, so th- I, w- I would say as someone who's been around elections a couple of times now, uh, I wouldn't take a meeting with a foreign national to be able to say, I want to share information with you about your opponents. Uh, I don't think that's appropriate. Uh, if he felt that strong on that, then he should have probably said it to someone early on uh, and helped them in that process. Uh, but it seemed to be ex- exceptionally strong to be able to word it that way, and it did what I guess he accomplished it to do. It it helped promote a book and to be able to get the word out on it quickly. So you mean it was on Bannon to say something? Or you know, his point is Don Jr. should have at least told a lawyer about it before you take a meeting like that. I, I would assume that would be prudent to do. Obviously, everyone in that campaign is, uh, and all the families used to working with different counsels and lawyers. Uh, they're also working 90 miles an hour as they go through things. Uh, that meeting will be uh, much discussed for a long time. It's been an area of intense investigation. Uh, on the Senate Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee as well, uh, meeting with the individuals that were in the room, trying to get full details about what happened, uh, getting different perspectives from different people, uh, and getting the story to be able to make sure that they line up. So we've gone extensively through that uh, to be able to get as much information as we possibly could about it. Just more broadly on the book, I mean, you saw the fallout in, in President Trump uh, denouncing Steve Bannon, saying he lost his mind in addition to losing his job. And whatever you say about the rhetoric around there, is part of you glad that there's a clean break? I know Steve Bannon is not a popular figure, particularly among Senate Republicans. Are you glad that, uh, that, that, that Trump and Bannon are, are getting separated? No, I, I, quite, quite frankly, I don't, I don't have any great affection for broken relationships in any way. Uh, there, there, there's an awful lot of heated rhetoric that's happening in the country right now, and it seems to get louder and louder and more and more broken uh, in relationships, and I don't think that helps us as Americans. I, I, I do try to back up and say there are people I disagree strongly with, but probably 80% of the time I agree with them on a lot of the big issues, and I think we spend an awful lot of time trying to belittle people that we disagree with on 20% of the issues uh, a lot. And uh, that, that I don't think helps us. I don't think it sets a good role model for the country. Uh, I don't think it helps us in, in a, as a role model for the rest of the world of how you resolve issues. Well, a big issue that has clearly drawn plenty of heated rhetoric, uh, immigration. But we've also yeah. seen quite a lot of bipartisan talk of, on the issue. You know, when the president first announced that he was ending the deferred deportation deferred action program, you seemed to push back and said that as Americans, we shouldn't hold children legally accountable for the actions of their parents. And you've sponsored your own bill, the Succeed Act, that essentially would let dreamers, like those young folks who came here as children who are now in college or the military, um, apply for for some permanent resident status and then essentially over a 15-year sort of longer path um, apply for citizenship through the green card system. You know, some say that you're pitching a major amnesty program and others say that it's too harsh in other ways. But, you know, I guess my first question would just be why haven't, you know, Republicans brought this bill to the floor? Why hasn't there been a vote on it yet? 
Well, the Succeed Act uh, is is a response to, quite frankly, the DREAM Act. Uh, the DREAM Act's been around for about 15 years. Uh, it's come before Congress three different times. It's failed all three times it's come up, uh, including when it was Democrats in control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. Uh, it failed even at that point as well. Uh, what I tried to look at is when the president in September announced he's going to end the DACA program, uh, there has to be a legislative solution for this group of individuals. Uh, and I know that there are individuals within my party uh, that, that say, you know, everybody that's here, uh, that they came in any way illegally, they need to uh, be deported. But that is a very small percentage of, of individuals that are in the country. Most individuals look at this DACA population and see them as uniquely different. They came at two or three years old, and yes, they may be 20 or 25 now, but they literally know no other country other than this country. They grew up every day speaking English. English, pledging allegiance to our flag uh, in their schools when they grew up. Uh, they finished their school. They've got a job. They're engaged. Uh, they're trying to figure out where do I go because there is no home for them. Uh, so I, I think there is some reasonable proposals to be able to do it. And what I try to do is establish a way of how could we get a good legislative solution for this group that both doesn't put them ahead of others that are in line to be able to go through citizenship the right way, but also holds them harmless for the actions of their parents. And uh, so that's why we tried to get the middle ground. And you're right. We've got some folks that scream amnesty and some folks uh, scream uh, that this is way too harsh. So we're probably in a pretty decent spot there. <laughs> you're getting criticism from both sides. But, you know, the president has said that any uh, sort of agreement to deal with the dreamers to get at this issue should be a part of a bigger immigration package that it that there will have to be more money for border security and specifically that wall. Do you think that's fair? Does it need to be a part of a bigger immigration reform package? I mean, it sounds to me listening to you talk like you'd be in favor of voting on on a fix just to this issue. No, I, I actually don't agree to just a fix. And in fact, when we announced the Succeed Act, we said th this is trying to solve this issue for the DACA kids, but this is one section of a larger bill. Because if you resolve the issue of DACA, what you really do is incentivize another group of unaccompanied minors and another group of kids and parents to cross the border and know, hey, if I wait this out, this is what happens. Uh, I can get access to naturalization eventually. Uh, and there is a benefit. So you, it, it is, uh, you, you can't just have this one piece and not have the rest. For instance, in 2013 and 2014, there's no question there was an enormous spike in unaccompanied minors when the president announced the DACA program. The coyotes in Central America were pushing those families and those kids saying, go now, go now, go now. If you go now, you're going to get access to America, and so you've got to hurry. Uh, so that we, we can't just ignore that. So with that, you've got to deal with border security. How are we going to resolve that? In some places, that is a physical barrier, like a wall. In other places, it's technology. In other places, it's additional manpower. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be a 2,000-mile-long tapeworm along our border, uh, 30 feet tall. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a different set of options that are there. Uh, some way, we've got to deal with the issue of chain migration. Uh, if we work through this number, let's say it's a million people through the DACA program, how does that not expand quickly to four or five million people uh, when we have a very, very lenient um, uh, system for immigration that's family-based? Are you convinced, Senator, to your point about uh, about the, uh, what, what the physical barrier looks like? Are you convinced that the White House would settle for something that isn't, isn't actually a physical wall, wall over the entire border? Oh, I, I absolutely agree they would. No, I, I have no doubt at all. Uh, they, 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 they clearly want sections of the border. And by the way, I think the population base uh, in that 
in that area would show that a physical wall is needed. Uh, if you've got two high populated areas on both sides of a border, uh, you need to have a physical border to be able to slow it down. And let, let, all the people say, if you put up a 30-foot wall, there's going to be a 31-foot ladder on the other side of it. That's absolutely true. But the, the goal of a wall is not stopping everyone. It's slowing them down enough that you can actually interdict at that spot. And if a 30-foot uh, foot, uh, ladder slows people down enough that Border Patrol can actually interdict them at that spot, that's really all you need. Uh, we've seen this in Yuma, Arizona, for instance, 15 years ago, uh, when a wall went in place and that it dramatically dropped crime because you had two areas where people could quickly cross a border, get to a border town, commit a crime, and to be able to cross the border. We should have physical barriers in those spots. But most of our border uh, technology uh, is, is a better solution than a very expensive wall. Curious about your ideas for a solution on another topic. The president obviously uh, raised a lot of eyebrows and I think kind of freaked some people out with his tweet about North Korea, basically saying that his nuclear button was bigger than Kim Jong-un's. You know, you visited the DMC last year, I understand. I'm I curious did. what your reaction to the president's tweet was. I mean, in your opinion, was the president threatening nuclear war through a tweet? I don't, I don't hear him threatening nuclear war. I think he's just poking a reminder to Kim Jong-un, who is feeling that, hey, I have a nuclear weapon that, that he believes can reach the United States. Uh, I think he's just reminding Kim Jong-un that we have a lot more than what you have. Uh, you need to get to the negotiating table and to be able to resolve this, uh, because if you feel like you have a nuclear missile, uh, that is not close to the stockpile that we have. And in, in some ways, I think the president's reminding Kim Jong-un he is poking the bear here. And don't do that. Stand down. No one wants war. And I would assure you, I've had the conversation with the president, with the secretary of state, with secretary of defense and others. No one here wants war. Uh, we all know exactly what that means. Uh, so it's how do you actually get this to be able to stand down? And so I think the president basically pushed back on Kim Jong-un. In a way that is typical of the president, exceptionally non-conventional. And, I, and that, that I think I think is an important point, typical of the president. And I, but it does assume that the person on the receiving end of that poke back understands it that way. And I think there's there's a question that I think has been raised in the, just in the first couple of day, days of the year around that. I, take a listen to what uh, what's, what Senator Chuck Schumer, the, the the Senate Democratic leader, said on the Senate floor today. My Republican colleagues should not be given a pass by the Republican people by the American people if they fail to speak out or take action against this behavior. Their silence, unfortunately, but I have to say it. I feel it sincerely, is complicity in the degradation of the presidency and the power of this country. So the question, Senator, is where your concern level sits and what your threshold is for speaking out. Does, does, this, does his behavior on, on, on Twitter and elsewhere, does it strike you as reckless or is, is he within the bounds of propriety so far? Well, he, he has made the statement, as, as people in the past have said, this is non-presidential. He has made the statement, I am the president, so what I do is presidential. It's just a different definition of that. Uh, the, the, the challenge that I have is, is, and I've made the comment a lot, uh, so th this, uh, it doesn't matter how many times you say it, it's never enough for some people. I don't speak that way the way the president does. I don't have my children speak that way, and I wish he wouldn't speak that way because I think it's too blunt. Uh, there's a difference between being a private citizen and being president of the United States. The entire world is listening to everything that you say. 
and I think he's speaking clearly to the American people and trying to be blunt and trying to remain who he is. Uh, but I think it, there are real diplomatic issues uh, that when you speak and the world is listening, you want to say it as clear as you possibly can and as careful as you possibly can. Saying that, that's not who he is, and that's not who the American people elected. Uh, they elected someone who doesn't have political correctness in his speech, who just says it as he thinks it in his head. Uh, a lot of people in the country really like it, and they want him to continue to do it, and he continues to do it his way. I think that is a, a fair assessment, Senator, and I appreciate you repeating it for us. And I think I've heard it from you directly before, but I think it is a, it's a well thought out and, uh, and I think uh, all, all in all, uh, a, a well-considered response to it all. Senator James Langford, Republican from Oklahoma, thanks for being here. You bet. Glad to be able to visit with you. Thanks, Senator. Uh, and, and Mary Alice, I, I think I think look every every lawmaker has to view these times in their own way, just like every reporter or any any citizen, anyone's looking at this that that he is redefining constantly what it means to be president of the United States. And I think the 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 the, the quote that Senator Langford referred to about the president getting to decide what's presidential is is true so far of as it course. goes. Yeah, that's that, that by definition has only been. 45 of them now, and they get to do the job the way they want. It and that the voters wanted something and different. And that the voters wanted something very different about, yeah. But but I think with every with every passing day and every passing revelation, and the book gets gets to this as well, we're learning things about this, uh, about the operations of this White House, about this presidency that are jarring, uh, frankly. The, 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 the kind of things he is saying publicly, the kind of things that are going on behind the scenes. Uh, it, and and the, the White House is a, you know, it's a functional building. It is getting things done. It's been almost almost exactly a year now in office, and the, the country is still standing. Uh, and it, it's happening all against uh, the, the backdrop of some really extraordinary things that are happening inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And there's fundamentally a difference between being politically correct politically incorrect, brash, reckless, speaking with your gut, delivering punches, being the Trump style, and degrading institutions, getting at constitutional and legal questions. And that's where I think uh, there's, we will continue to see Republicans on Capitol Hill and around the country face questions about when it is appropriate to speak out and push back, whether it is appropriate for them to use their constitutional authority to be a check on this White House. Uh, Because again, it is one thing to be your own style, your own president, your own uh, brash self, and another to, for instance, be judge and jury talking about whether a political opponent should be in jail. Uh, that really is a different question. And so reporters will have to keep answering and asking Republicans what they think about this. Was there a Taylor Swift reference in that answer? Just tell me if there was. <laughs> no. Okay, good. I, like, I would have missed it. All right. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, thanks, Thank you, Mary Alice, for being here. Uh, for, uh, thank you to our producing team, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, and the great Dave Ryan behind the controls or hope you're back with us next week when John Carl will take us back you know to the Dylan era uh, <laughs> uh, almost uh, almost certainly uh, and thank you for listening and happy Broad new year the audience right right in the audience oh it's fine no it's all good you're good it's, it's good it's the first time ever on powerhouse politics that we went with it with an artist who's recorded things in the 21st century that's a good thing that's a good thing uh, thank you all for listening and happy new year to our listeners thanks so much 